and the worship of our hearts, Father. And so this morning we lift up our worship to you and we ask that you would meet with us. We ask that you would send your spirit and that he would be present here this morning, that he would speak in our hearts. He would would transform us. He would meet us where we are and, and lead us along the path of knowing you and sharing in your power and experiencing your peace and your blessing. Father, we ask that that you would speak to us as we open up the scriptures. uh, We would be transformed into your image. Let's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Acts chapter 21 is where we will be. Acts chapter 21. We are picking back up in the book of Acts. We took a little bit of a break, and we are hitting the stretch run, okay? So we will not be doing anything else until we are done with the book of Acts. We will uh, finish up before Easter, and we're looking at doing a maybe five-week series starting on Easter Sunday, which will be March 31st to early Easter this year, uh, on the resurrection. And so thinking through four or five, maybe six different ways that the resurrection of Jesus uh, matters and has this, this big impact in our lives. Um, and so it's one of the things we've tried to emphasize over the past year or so uh, is, is not to forget the resurrection. Sometimes we can focus so much on Jesus' death that we forget the resurrection. And it's a very important part of our faith and a part of our life. Uh, and so we'll spend a few weeks come Easter thinking through different ways that the resurrection really uh, plays out uh, and is, is such a blessing for us. Um, but until then, again, we're in kind of the stretch run of Acts. We'll pick it up in verse uh, chapter 21, and we will run through. There's 28 chapters, and, and so we will uh, be doing this for the next few weeks. We started Acts a little over a year ago, and when we started Acts, the, the kind of stated goal or purpose of studying the book of Acts was that as we study the early church, uh, we would maybe learn a few things along the way about what it means to be the people of Jesus, about what it means to to be faithful followers of Jesus. And so we see kind of a mission statement for the church in Acts 1-8 when Jesus tells his disciples that you're going to go out into the world and be witnesses, witnesses of me, of my resurrection, of the good news of what God has done through me and is now doing through the Spirit. And so along the way, I think we've seen lots of different things about what it means to, to be the church and what it means to try to be witnesses, to be witnesses of, of Jesus and his resurrection and of the gospel, the good news. Now, our mission statement here at the church is to glorify God by making disciples, making disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's something that we're going to probably talk about uh, a lot in 2013 and and something that we'll probably mention a few times uh, on Sunday mornings. Um, And and what you'll see as we finish up the book of Acts is we're going to zero in on Paul. So we've been looking at Paul mainly in the book of Acts for the last few chapters, and we'll kind of see his missionary journeys end uh, as Acts wraps up. And Paul was a man who did what we want to do. He was a man who fulfilled our stated uh, mission statement. Paul made disciples. He, he came to people and he allowed them, he introduced them to Jesus and, and he got them walking after him, following him. And then he also set them up to be able to multi- multiply and replicate and for them, those disciples, to make more disciples. And so this morning we'll zero in on another story about Paul as he starts to head to Jerusalem. And I want us to take two cues from the life of Paul, particularly these events here in this chapter. I think, I think two things we can learn about what it means and how you and I are supposed to make disciples. If we, we really want to make disciples, it's something we're going to challenge each other to do in 2013. 
is to, to make disciples and, and maybe even again, like I said, uh, on the 6th to, to kind of have a personal commitment that this year will really invest in, in trying to see at least one person really discipled underneath us. I mean, to really step out of our comfort zone and to go and, and try to adopt this kind of, of purpose for our lives. So this morning, I think we'll, we'll see two things, okay? Uh, two cues that we can take from Paul's life. So we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 21, verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. Verse 4, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. So Paul and his companions are on the way to Jerusalem. They stop in this town, and they go find the Christians in this town, and they spend a week with them. Uh, they, they go stay there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So this is very, very interesting, okay? Paul has this plan to go to Jerusalem, and it's going to seem like at least a couple times in Acts 21, maybe the Spirit, the same Spirit who told Paul to go to Jerusalem, is speaking through other people not to go to Jerusalem. You kind of have these two different ideas of what God wants for Paul's life here in Acts 21. And so the, so the people they're staying with for the seven days, through the Spirit, they were saying, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So there's this real touching scene here. I mean, they've only been together for a week, but they bonded. And, and so, I mean, Paul even has his relationship with the kids, right? And they all come to the beach right before they leave, and they kneel down, and they pray together, and they say goodbye. You've got to remember, Paul is collecting money from the Gentiles, from his Gentile churches he's starting, and he's going to take it to Jerusalem, okay? And he thinks this is going to kind of confirm his ministry to the Gentiles, that this is, is proof that the prophecies are coming true. The Gentiles are symbolically coming to Jerusalem and worshiping with the Jewish people. And so he wants to do this on his way to Spain. Ultimately, he wants to go um, far, far west and go where no one else has gone with the gospel. So he's heading to Jerusalem. He meets these people. The Spirit is kind of leading them to try to plead Paul out of going to Jerusalem. Um, but they can't do it. So they, they say goodbye and Paul gets in the ship and keeps going. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus is a prophet, okay? And so he hears from the Spirit and then prophesies. And, and what he does here is kind of the symbolic action. And this is really common for prophets. In the Old Testament, if you were to read some of the prophets, you'll see this kind of stuff happening all the time. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they kind of act out. What it is the Spirit is telling them. There's lots of reasons they do this, but it's, it's very characteristic of Old Testament prophets. So Isaiah goes around naked for a while, okay, streaking. That's a uh, prophetic action. So baseball fans are just standing in a long line of, of prophetic tradition there. Uh, Ezekiel will cook food over human excrement as a, a prophecy of 
the uncleanness that the Jews will experience in the exile. Now, actually, I mean, to be technically correct, he actually bargains down with God. God tells him, God shows up and says, cook it over human excrement. And God, though, after some, some reasoning from Ezekiel, meets him in the middle and he uses cow excrement. Um, so God's reasonable, okay? He can be, he can be convinced to, to come meet you in the middle. Um, and they have all these different kind of prophetic, symbolic actions uh, that, they, that they use to communicate their message. And Agabus comes to Paul and he takes his belt and he wraps up his hands and wraps up his feet and says, the person who owns this belt, if they go to Jerusalem, this is going to be what happens to them. And this wouldn't have been some strange thing for Paul. Like, this guy is weird. What's going on? I mean, he would have taken this very seriously. I mean, they, they very much believed in, in prophets and, and the prophetic gift and that ability. And, and so they get this message. Again, this is what's going to happen when you go to Jerusalem. And so you'll see the reaction here, uh, verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So this is the second time in, already in this chapter. People are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things are waiting for you there. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? A very emotional kind of scene here. I'm ready, he says, not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul says, look, get rid of the belt and get a sword. I'm... I don't care if they bind my hands. I don't care even if they, they take my life. I, I believe I need to go there. In verse 14, And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Okay, now, you'll remember Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and then also wrote the book of Acts. And it's a one-part, two-part kind of series, okay? They're meant to be read together. And um, what we've done with our Bibles is we've shoved John in between Luke and Acts, and sometimes that kind of throws us off, okay? But it really is volume one, volume two. Now, if you read from Luke all the way through to the end of Acts, what you'll see is a lot of parallels between the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke, the reason he's one of my favorite gospel writers is he's just this masterful storyteller, there's no end of finding little gems that Luke throws in stories and little parallels Luke gives you um, to just kind of enrich the stories and the, the communication that he's giving you. Um, and, and so what you'll see, again, you would see this much more clearly if you just sat down one afternoon and read through Luke and kept on reading through Acts and got up to this point. Luke goes out of his way here to show you and I that Paul's life, particularly right here at this moment, is overlapping with Jesus' life at the end of Luke. There's a very clear parallel, as if you had a sketch of Jesus and his career and his ministry, and then you put Paul's here in this part of Acts on top of it, and it's point for point the same. There's this clear parallel. Luke's trying to communicate with everything that he has to do as a storyteller that Paul is following after Jesus, that Paul is, is literally following in the footsteps of Jesus. So some of the parallels. If you remember the story of Jesus, okay, Jesus goes intentionally to Jerusalem. He feels God leading him to Jerusalem, and he intentionally goes to be there at the time of Passover, toward the end of Luke. In fact, Luke paints his whole gospel in this direction. Starting from chapter 9 on, it's all about the journey to Jerusalem. Here you see Paul having this intentional journey to Jerusalem, much like Jesus did. Both of them, when they get to Jerusalem, will have a Jewish plot against them. Okay, We'll see this later on in Acts 21. Um, they both get to Jerusalem, and the Jews incite uh, charges against them. They both end up in the hands of Roman authorities because of the Jewish plots against them. They go on trial with the Jewish people and the Roman people. 
they both get yelled at by the crowds to be killed when the Romans take control of them. Again, we'll see this as we go on in the book of Acts in this chapter. Now, a, a really clear one here is they both, at the end of Luke and at this part in Acts, as Jesus and as Paul are traveling to Jerusalem, there's a triple prediction of their suffering. So in Luke, in chapter 9, if you'll remember, uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, you hit it right on the nail, but maybe not the kind of Messiah you were expecting. Because I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. The hands of lawless men and, and raise up again. And if you remember Peter's reaction, priceless, he tells Jesus he's wrong, okay? Mm-hmm. He says, no, that's not what's going to happen. Kind of pleads with them not to go if that is what's going to happen, similar to what's happening here with Paul. And then what you'll see from that first prediction, two more times on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus will give a prediction of his passion. When I go to Jerusalem, this is what's happening. It's not a surprise. This, I know what's waiting for me in Jerusalem. Well, and Paul, we, we see two here. If you go back to Acts chapter 20, I'll show you real quick these three predications. Um, in, in verse 22, Acts 20, verse 22, we read this last time we were in the book of Acts. And now behold, this is Paul talking. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city awaits imprisonment and afflictions. Now, you don't have to be a genius to figure this out, okay? By this point in the story, you don't have to have this gift of prophecy to figure out everywhere Paul goes, people get upset. He gets in prison and stuff um, goes down. It gets crazy. Uh, He says, but I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I would finish the course and ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So there's your first kind of prediction, the first hint of a passion, a suffering that will take place in Jerusalem. As we hit chapter 21, we saw it in verse 4. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Number two. And then in verse 10 and 11, Agabus takes the belt, binds his own hands and feet, and says, Thus says the Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will treat the man who owns this belt. This, these three predictions of Paul's passion, just like Jesus as he journeys to Jerusalem. And then both Jesus and Paul, at the end of these predictions, resign themselves to God's will. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, after this intense time of prayer with the Father, finally says, Not my will, but your will be done. And after Paul and his friends get together, his friends desperately pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem, they finally concede and it says, let the will of the Lord be done. Nevertheless, let the will of the Lord be done. All right, the first thing I want us to to see here, the first cue I want us to take from Paul here as we try to make disciples is that making disciples will involve, will, will necessitate that you and I imitate Jesus, that we live a Christ shaped life. That we walk the way that he walked. That we take the steps that he took. You see this real clearly here in the book of Acts. Paul is literally walking after Jesus. The same things are happening to Paul that are happening to Jesus. Now, not exactly. There are differences. So when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he doesn't end up dying there. Okay. When Jesus is on trial, he doesn't give a defense for himself. Paul will. Paul will give a, a pretty good defense for himself. And it will take him to Caesar's city. It will take him to the capital, to Rome. But Paul is following after his Lord in very clear, intentional steps. And in fact, in in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul would say to the church in Corinth, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. As I try to live the kind of life that Jesus lived, even sometimes to the point of step by step, 
going to Jerusalem, being handed over to the Jews, walking in the path that Jesus walked. Um, this is all throughout the scriptures, this idea that you and I should imitate Christ, that we should live this Christ-shaped life. Our life should look like Jesus' life. In John 13, after Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he says, I have set an example for you, for you to follow. Now, we're not in the scriptures commanded to imitate all of Jesus' life. There's only actually a, a select few things that we're ever explicitly told to imitate from Jesus. And one of them is service. As Jesus served others, so you and I should serve others. As he washes the feet of others, so you and I should wash the feet of others. There are certain denominations who take foot washing as a sacrament because of this, this passage right here in John 13. Because there's this, there's this explicit command, right? As I've done, so you should do. And so some of them, just like baptism, communion, sit down and wash people's feet. Um, it's a different tradition than from where we are. Um, I think we would probably be like, well, it's the general idea, right? I mean, it's the gist. You serve people, okay, but we're not touching anyone's feet. <laughs> uh, in 1 John 2, 6, John says, Whoever says he abides in Jesus must walk in the same way in which he walked. In 1 Peter 2, to this you are called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. We're told to, to imitate Christ in his um, servingness and in, in the way that, that he served others. We're, we're told to imitate Christ in his obedience to the Father. And we're told to imitate Christ in his sacrifice, in his suffering, in, in the cross. That's one of the things that, that you and I are commanded to do after Jesus. He even does this, take up your cross. That you and I would follow that same path of giving up our lives for the life of other people. Now, what we sometimes do in the church and what we're sometimes tempted to do is ignore the life of Jesus and particularly his commands, okay? And we kind of think of the Gospels, the four Gospels, as just this setup to his death, right? And, and, and we, we emphasize his death because it's real nice for us, right? Our sins are forgiven. And what sometimes we're not careful what we can do is by emphasizing his death and forgetting his life and his commands and his teachings and all those things, we can kind of head towards this get-out-of-hell-free mentality, right? Where our lives don't matter as much right now, and where we haven't been told all that much to do other than support right, the right two or three political kind of hot-button items. But we, we celebrate the fact that Jesus died for us. If you ask, I think, a lot of people, what's the important thing about Jesus coming to earth? They'd say the fact that he died for us. He died for our sins. I'm forgiven. It doesn't matter as much what I do, the mistakes that I make, because I'm, I'm forgiven. He died for my sins. Um, but, but, I mean, really, Christianly, when you're thinking about it, it's Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. It's all of it as one thing that saves us, that brings us into God's family, adopted us as sons. And there's this very real strain of thought all throughout the New Testament that obedience, in a real sense, is salvation. We're saved from slavery to sin and death. If we continue to walk in sin and death, I think Paul would say numerous times, what were you saved from? <laughs> this is silly. You're the same exact person. You don't export this to, to the time you die, right? You, you don't apologize for ignoring God on your deathbed, and, and, and that's not the plan. That's not what Christianity is about. I heard someone say uh, a couple weeks ago um, that wanting to go to heaven after you die has almost nothing to do with being a Christian. But again, if, if we're not careful, that kind of is what it morphs into. Because that's easy to sell. I mean, that's easy to... to get people to cross off boxes and that kind of a thing. But Jesus comes to people and says, follow me. 
I'm going to mentor you. You're going to imitate me. The way that I look, the way that I talk, the way that I walk, the way that I relate with other people, the way that I relate to God, these are going to be the type of things that you now adopt as my follower. Those are the kind of people that should be populating the church, people that have made a commitment to the now resurrected Lord and say, we are following you. The way that you showed us how to live, the way that you taught us to live, that's how we're living. And and again, Paul is doing this here real clear, real apparently for us. So we imitate Jesus in his obedience. We live this this Christ-shaped life where these these little Jesuses walking around. Um, We've we've looked at Romans 8, our destiny, your destiny as a Christian is to, to look like Christ. Whatever path you're on, whatever decisions you're making, that should be the goal. Is that in a year from now, and in two years from now, and in three years from now, and in four years from now, you look like Christ. And this is not some Christ we get to make up. I mean, we, we have Christ. We have Jesus. We know what he did and looked like and, and what he thought and those kind of things. Um, and so we, we, we're obedient to him. We're, we're committed to live as kingdom people. Um, all of our chips are on the table. We live Jesus' lives. And, and Jesus has some very radical and, and hard things for us to do and for us to follow. Um, in regards to our money and, and the way we spend our time and the way we think about possessions and the way we relate to other people. I mean, very, very challenging things. But if you and I really want to make disciples, if we really want to follow after him and, and join God on his mission, it's going to require you and I to walk like Jesus walked, to imitate him. To live a Christ-shaped life. And, and I think you see Paul doing that here. I think Luke goes out of his way to make sure you see Paul is following in the steps of his master, of his Lord. His imagination has been so captured um, with loyalty to, to Jesus. Um, so he's headed to Jerusalem. They leave the city after this kind of debate between the two of them and, and make their way to Jerusalem. Um, so we'll pick it up in verse 17. When, he had, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Now, what you'll notice is Luke does not mention at all the collection, the money that Paul brought to Jerusalem. This is significant. We don't know exactly why it's significant, but we know it's significant. Either it meant... Perhaps the, the Jerusalem church didn't accept it. Or, and probably more likely, it didn't do what Paul thought it would do, as we'll see. There's still big problems with Paul and with his mission. Um, and Paul had anticipated this. In Romans 15, Paul says, I'm a little nervous about going to Jerusalem. I'm not sure the collection is going to do what it's supposed to do when we get there. And so Luke doesn't mention the collection as he brings it uh, to the Jerusalem church. But it seems like he gets a, a fairly warm welcome from them. He tells them about what he's been doing with the Gentiles. They've received him. But then they said to him this in verse 20. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So the Jerusalem church has had this real successful ministry. But they are zealous for the law, the Torah. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. So these rumors had flared about Paul. These are, are false rumors. Um, you got to wonder who's telling them these things. Okay, how are these accusations being flown around? But here's the basic story going around. Paul, as he's been going out to these Gentile cities, goes to the synagogues, then to the, the Gentiles, starts these churches. And one of his big beliefs 
and the gospel and the good news of Jesus that the Jerusalem church has confirmed and said, we agree with, we're on board with, is that Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to start following Torah. Now, what Paul has never done is said that Jews have to stop following Torah or stop being circumcised. Paul would say in Galatians, I don't care. Be circumcised or don't be circumcised. That's of no value to anybody. It's, it's, it's beside the point. What is the point, though, is you can't make someone be circumcised as a requirement to be in the community of faith. And so they've distorted what Paul's actually doing here um, to saying when Paul goes to these cities, he's not only telling the Gentiles they don't have to adopt the Torah, but he's telling the Jews they need to stop. And so the, the Jews in Jerusalem are, are saying he's attacking our heritage. He's attacking the, the Jewish background of the faith. And they're zealous for the law. And this is not okay with them. They're very, very upset with this. Now, Jerusalem in this time period, we're in the late 50s, 57, maybe 59. It is a politically volatile place. It's on the brink of explosion. Okay, We're about 10 years away from Rome coming in and destroying the entire city because they were tired of dealing with them. Josephus tells us around this time, there's riot after riot after riot, revolution after revolution after revolution. So Jerusalem is already a tense place. And there's already tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And now Paul shows up, who's kind of the like magnetic shock of this tension, right? I mean, he's the guy who started all of this. And when he goes places, things go bad. People get upset, right? It's happened. So the Jerusalem church is nervous, to say the least, okay, about what's going to happen when Paul gets here. All of their people have been talking about Paul. And they've heard these rumors going around about Paul. And while they may support Paul, they realize that people who are zealous for things oftentimes don't listen to logic and, and oftentimes stir themselves up real quickly in these, in these riots. So they come up with a plan. They've got a plan to try to calm things down. I'm not sure they're actually too thrilled to have Paul in the city. But they're like, look, you're here. Let's try to, let's try to do this. So here's what they say. Verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there's nothing in what you have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law, the Torah. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went to the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. So their plan is for Paul to go through this Jewish purification ritual, so that he could go worship in the temple. Now, we know that this was a fairly common thing for Jews who had been living outside of Jerusalem. They would go through this, this time of purification so that they'd be clean and wouldn't defile the temple. What you see here is, again, Paul has no problem adopting the, the customs of the Torah. He would say in Corinthians, to the Jews, I'll be a Jew. To the Gentiles, I'll be a Gentile. Again, it doesn't matter for me either way as long as we understand that faith in Christ alone is what marks someone out as in the people of God. And so Paul agrees. He says, sure, I'll go in. With these guys, we'll make a vow. We'll go into the temple. Now, what's funny here is, is the Jewish church has to realize they're trying to do something that's impossible. I mean, they're trying to stop the inevitable from happening with this plan. I'm not sure there's anything you could have hatched that was going to keep things from exploding when Paul shows up in Jerusalem. So if you were just to run through Paul's last few stops of ministry, and Antioch riots break out, 
Then he goes to Lystra where he's stoned. Then he moves on to Philippi where he's beaten. Then he goes to Thessalonica where again riots break out in the streets. Then he goes to a few towns where he's just run out of town. He just has to, to flee, he has to escape. In Corinth, he gets uh, held up in court. He gets put on trial and their anti-Jewish violence breaks out. So people start killing Jews because he's there and because of the, the stuff he's started. In Ephesus, you remember this? You have 25,000 pagans fill a stadium chanting against him. Okay, and chanting against what he's done to their gods. Um, one of my authors that I was reading this week put, what do they think is going to happen in Jerusalem? A Sunday school picnic? I mean, what, yeah. is, what are you expecting when Paul shows up to the most dangerous place in the world at this point? He's one of the most dangerous men in the world. There could not have been a worse combination for this time in history. But the Jews are like, look, maybe if you go into this temple, you get purified, things will be okay. So Paul agrees. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed... The Jews from Asia, so this would have been Jews from probably Ephesus, okay? It's not even the Jews in Jerusalem who end up starting this. They saw him in the temple, and they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled the holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So they trump up these charges against Paul. They recognize a convert from Ephesus in him, with him in the city. They know he's been going into the temple for this purification rite. And so they say, look, he took this Greek into the temple. Now this was a death penalty charge. Okay? In fact, we even have records that the Romans would let the Jews carry out the death penalty if they claimed their temple had been defiled. The Jews were that serious about it. The Romans knew every now and then, just don't get involved. Let them do their thing because it will get really ugly really fast if we try to step in. In fact, there's even evidence, and if you know anything about kind of first century history, that the Romans would let the Jews kill a Roman citizen if he was charged with going into the temple and defiling it without a trial. Again, the Jewish people were all willing to die over this. The Romans knew that this was serious stuff. And so they trump up this charge against Paul, and things are going to get out of control really fast. Then all the city was stirred up. The people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And once the gates were shut, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. So the Romans actually set up this tower um, for the army to overlook the temple because they knew this was the place where things went down. And so they would have had, at most times, particularly this time in history, about a thousand troops able to march pretty quickly on the temple. And that's what's happening here. They see the riots break out. Again, we have historical records of this happening over and over and over again. The Jews start to riot around the temple. Here comes the cohort. Okay, They come in and, and try to calm things down. So he at once took shoulders. Centurions ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Okay, Who are you all upset about? This guy? All right. They arrest him. They ordered him to be bound with two chains. Agabus's uh, prophecy comes true. He inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps and was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed crying away with him. Again, much like Jesus as he's taken into to Roman custody. So you have this real deliberate irony here. I mean, if you really watch what's happening... Paul is going out of his way to accommodate the Jewish people. And he goes through this purification ritual in order to not defile the temple. 
per the request of the Jews. And then the Jews accuse him of defiling the temple. I mean, he's gone out of his way to, to serve these people and to, to bring the gospel to them. And the same people who, who he loves so much, you can see that in, in Romans, end up trumping up this charge against him for the very thing he was going out of his way not to do because they had asked him to do that. I mean, the irony is that Paul is falsely accused of profaning the temple. He's in the process of being purified when it's, in fact, the temple that's still pure, his character that's being defiled, that's being desecrated, um, that, that's being attacked here. The second thing I want us to see here, the second cue I think we should take from Paul, the first one again, that you and I should be imitating Christ as we make disciples. The second one is that often imitating Christ will be brought along with suffering. Oftentimes when you and I make disciples, when we join God on his mission, there is opposition. There's persecution, there's, there's suffering, there's misunderstanding, as you see Paul being misunderstood. Now this is something that, that we're not super familiar with in kind of our, our Western context, okay? There's not a whole lot of persecution that happens toward us. You would be aware that there are places in the world where from day one of you following Jesus, your family would disown you, the authorities would be after you, that kind of thing still happens to this day. Um, but, but even you and I, I think, face some opposition. And I think really when we're truly following Jesus, we face more opposition, more and more, the more we stand um, for Jesus and the more we stand for, for the things that he's called us to. Paul has this, this kind of obedience that we could call like even when obedience. Even when it involves suffering, I'll obey. Not just when it's convenient for me. Not when it works out well for me. I mean, it's crazy that over and over again, people are telling Paul, don't go, don't go, don't go. And Paul, steadfast, continues on to Jerusalem, knowing that suffering awaits him there. Again, this is one of the things that Scripture commands us to imitate Christ in, to take up a cross, to lay down our lives, to have this, this character of self-sacrificial love, where because we are spreading the gospel, we are sacrificing we're giving up our rights. We're giving up our time. We're giving up our money. We're laying down our lives. We're sacrificing because we, we want to join God on his mission. And this is really, I think, when obedience becomes obedience, right? I mean, obedience really becomes obedience when it's not what you would have chosen to do. It's not obedience when you tell the kids to come in the van and let's go get ice cream. And they run into the van, right? Oh, look, they're so obedient. We train them so well. So because we say, go to bed, right? And then they go to bed. That's when you're like, oh, wow, they really have some kind of respect for my authority. They're really obeying what I've told them to do. They would not have chosen to do that. But yet still they're, they're obeying. That's kind of obedience that, that Paul's modeling that, that he first saw in Jesus, as Jesus modeled it on the way to the cross. Obedience to the Father. And then, I mean, you see here, and, and this is something I've seen multiple times, sometimes when you make a decision to obey God, to follow Christ, and it will involve suffering, people around you who love you and know you will try to stop you. And not because they, they want you to disobey, right? But, but because that's just a natural human instinct. That's a natural family instinct, friendly instinct, parental instinct, to want to protect, to want to keep from harm's way. And, and Paul experiences this. And, and his friends, his, his partners aren't, aren't bad people, right? They're not... They're not trying to get Paul out of God's plan for his life. But, but they don't want to see Paul suffer. They don't want to see him go 
go through these trials, go through this suffering. When he's in Manasseh's house, this is going to be the last roof he's ever under as a free man for the rest of his life. And they've been told this clearly by the Spirit. And they say, don't do that. Surely there's other stuff you can do to serve God, right? Rich people need to hear about God too. Save up some money, Paul. Get a nice house. Minister to those people. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't be killed. But sometimes the, the best thing that you can do to support somebody who, who feels a calling is to, to say, the will of the Lord be done. Even if that involves suffering. Sometimes loved ones, they, they, they just want to protect. Um, now I think that Paul understands and has thought through because of Jesus, because of his suffering, the idea that oftentimes the kingdom comes through the cross. That this is one of God's ways of acting in the world. That the kingdom comes oftentimes through suffering. And that's in suffering where God's glory and power are sometimes most revealed. It's not oftentimes in the um, strengths of people or in the highlights of people or in the impressive kind of worldly displays of people that God shows up. It's instead when they are at their wit's end or when they're out of their comfort zone or when they are struggling and their backs against the wall. That's when God shows up and that's when he works really powerfully. And and people who, who would avoid suffering their whole life might be avoiding making disciples their whole life and might be avoiding following Jesus their whole life. Because oftentimes that's, that's the path. The kingdom often comes through the cross. I think, I think, again, Paul realizes that his weakness oftentimes is the conduit for God's power and God's mission um, to go out into the world. Uh, I had a teacher uh, named Jamie. He, he taught me Hebrew. And uh, Jamie once was in a class, and, and he had been having some difficulties in his life, uh, some problems with, with different authority figures and, and people uh, around him and, and it was really kind of being pressed down on and, and kind of beaten down and I remember a, a prayer uh, that Jamie prayed and he in it he prayed that God would make him weaker and that God would take away power from him and take away influence from him because it's in his weakness that God's power is made strong and I thought man I've heard crazy prayers before and I've heard people say they pray crazy things but I've never heard that before I mean, think about that. Think about how many times you and, and myself, I mean, thousands of times, have prayed for strength and have prayed for problems to be solved. Mm-hmm. And I'm not feeling well or, or relationships aren't working right for me, and so I go, God, please give me the strength to go through this. It's, I mean, what kind of a prayer would it be to say, God, make me weaker. Make me feel less in control of the situation. Make me feel more at my wit's end. Make me more uncomfortable more afraid, more dependent. Make this an embarrassing situation for me so you can be boasted in. Flip with me real quick to Second Corinthians. Paul, as he reflects on his time as a missionary, is going to, to do this thing where he boasts, but, but he's going to boast in his, again, kind of embarrassments. Kind of the weakest moments of his life. And not kind of the highlights of his life. He says in, in verse 16, 11, 2 Corinthians eleven sixteen, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. He's going up against these super apostles. He's, these guys who are really powerful and really strong and really impressive. Who seem to have everything together. 
And, and they started doubting Paul's authority as an apostle because Paul seemed like this, this kind of weak dude who, who constantly got in trouble and constantly couldn't figure out how to even manage his own life. And so Paul's trying to reclaim his authority with the Corinthian church. He says, what I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, these super apostles, they list off their credentials. Paul says, I'll boast. For you gladly bear with fools, obviously, with these apostles. Being wise yourselves, you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. We, we never made those boasts. But whatever else, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, he says, but I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? Paul says, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? What does he say? I'm a better one. <laughs> Checkmate, Paul. <laughs> I'm talking like a madman, he says. But I have four greater labors, four more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I've been beating with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall? And I'm not indignant. If I must boast, he says, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, there's an ancient Greek story similar to this being led down to a basket. And, and it's like of the fool. It's like of the person you don't want to follow. And Paul's saying, look at me. I escaped in a basket down the city like a, like a little scared person. I'm the apostle. I'm the apostle of the crucified one, though. Paul says, it's not worth boasting in, in the fact that I'm an Israelite. He says, instead, let me list off all the things you're embarrassed of me for. Because that's what shows God's glory. That's where his kingdom comes. I mean, it would be like if, if I stood up and, and went through every bad sermon I ever preached every bad illustration I ever made, and every joke I said that y'all don't laugh at. And the time I, I accidentally spent $50,000 from the church's budget, right, nothing came of it, and went through all the times, right, I just embarrassed all of us. I'm, I'm boasting of my weaknesses. I mean, sometimes we, we look at lists like this and we think, like, it's kind of like a backhanded boast, right? Like, he's suffering for Christ. <laughs> like, that's not... We don't see that as weakness. We see that as like this real big, like, oh, he's a martyr. Like, that's the highest of high. But, but this would have been embarrassing, particularly this church in Corinth. This would have been like our own apostle who claims he has the spirit of God can't keep himself fed. How embarrassing. Like, he can't even travel places. He says, at one point I've been in danger from my people, danger from the Gentiles. So I, I stand up here and I said, one time y'all hated me, and then people not in the church hated me. And then I went to the city, and they hated me. And I went to the suburbs, and they hated me. And I went to the country, and they hated me. I've been in danger everywhere. I can't keep food on my plate. Upon all of that, everything I've started is falling apart. <laughs> I'm thinking about that every day. He says, these are the things I boast in. Because I happen to know one who, who was crucified. I happen to know one who laid his life down and let God raise it up. If you, you keep reading, you skip over just a little bit in chapter 12. 
in verse 9, he's been talking about this thorn that he's had in his flesh. He says, but he said to me, the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you. Kind of like we sang earlier this morning. For my power, he says, is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is why Paul says, let's go to Jerusalem. Because I'm going to obey the way that Christ obeyed. I'm going to imitate him. And if it means suffering, then it means suffering. If it means being weak, it means being weak. But my only desire, he says, is to finish the course that Christ has laid out for me. To fulfill the purpose he's given me. To, to make disciples. To spread the good news. To be a witness to the resurrection. And Paul understood that that meant walking like Christ walked and, and oftentimes facing opposition. Facing suffering. Being willing to be misunderstood. I mean, the people that he was going out of his way to love are the people who betray him. Much like the Lord when he was in Jerusalem. Sometimes perhaps when, when we're serving others, they, they might misunderstand. They might, might turn on us. I mean, you'll see this all throughout the scriptures, these commands. Don't be surprised when you, you suffer as a Christian. Don't be surprised. This was the path laid out for you by Jesus. This shouldn't hit you as, as something that you weren't expecting. And the kingdom often comes through crosses. If you're not bearing crosses, perhaps you're not walking down the kingdom road. You're not walking down the kingdom path. If you're not really sacrificing so much out of love for other people to share the good news, perhaps you're missing something. So this morning, as we, we continue walking in 2013, we, we think about our commitment to, to, to joining God's mission and to making disciples who make disciples. And we remind ourselves that, that to do so, we need to commit to imitating our Lord, to walking after him, and then to be prepared and okay with being weak and with suffering and with being misunderstood. That on that road, we're walking a, well, a well-walked path that our Lord prepared for us. And, and, and as we come to the table, we remember that it was through Christ's sufferings that blessing and salvation was able to come. That perhaps through our sufferings, this blessing continues to go out into the world. As we make disciples, we make disciples. Let's pray together. On the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed, he, he sat with his, his disciples in the upper room and, and they participated in the, the Passover meal. Remembering God's redemption and his, his deliverance. Um, and today, we, we, as we gather on our, our day of worship, we remember his deliverance. We remember the fact that Jesus gave his life for us. And we lift up our, our praises to God. And we ask now, Father, that you would, you would bless us. We ask that you would um, draw near to us, that you would um, transform us into, into your image. Uh, that we would receive your grace, that it would be enough for us, and that we would be able to follow after you boldly, despite what sacrifices it might require, dis- despite what suffering um, might come our way. That through our, our faithful endurance of suffering, through our, our even-win obedience, that you would be glorified, and your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.
will now participate in communion as the central act of worship as we gather each week and we come and we celebrate uh, Christ's death for us and the life that flows to us and through us because of his sacrifice. God, we thank you for um, for your sacrifice for us and uh, for the world. God, we just pray that um, we would be constantly reminded that um, it is through suffering um, that you can be victorious, God. We just thank you for um, for the model you've given us to follow. It's your name we pray. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat in the upper room with the disciples and he took the bread and he broke it and blessed it, saying, This is my body given for you. And likewise, he took the cup and he said, This is my blood poured out for your sins. As often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you remember me.